Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President for Health Science Center Faculty Development at the University of Louisville. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Faculty Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Faculty Health Professions Education. Once a week, we're going to come together to use this podcast to bring faculty development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. Today, we're talking with Carrie Bonert, who is Director of the Standardized Patient Program at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. Carrie, welcome to Faculty Feed. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. So, Carrie, we talked with you previously um, broadly about patient simulation. Can you remind us what patient simulation is? There's a couple different forms. So, um, a lot of our schools on our campus would be familiar with mechanical simulators um, that would enable a student to do some sort of health task on a mannequin or a um, you know silicone body part or head or entire full body in order to practice a particular skill before they go and they do that on patients. The part that I am more involved in then is standardized patient methodology or SP methodology, which we hire and train everyday regular people and train them to portray the signs and symptoms of illness so that then we can put them in a room with a learner and truly see how the learner puts the pieces together in real time. So we use that as both a teaching tool and an assessment tool. We asked you here to talk about gender diversity Mm -hmm. in patient simulation. What do we mean when we say gender diversity? Gender diversity could be intersex, could be transgender, could be agender, which means not identifying with any gender at all, could be non-binary, which comes with a host of kind of sub-classifications of identifying with a range of genders or um, somewhere in between a gender continuum or spectrum. The University of Louisville School of Medicine has been thinking a lot about this. Um, They've been integrating LGBTQ health competencies as part of their curriculum for several years now. Why is representing gender diversity important for health professions education? So I think the AAMC said it well. The title is Implementing Curricular and Institutional Climate Changes to Improve Healthcare for Individuals Who Are LGBT Gender Nonconforming or Born with DSD. So the healthcare system has perpetrated harm against people who identify in these ways through constricting or restrictive social expectations and norms, imposing invasive and inappropriate physical examination and or questioning history taking upon people um, out of the provider's own morbid curiosity or interest in, in putting their learners ahead of the patient and also in delaying or denying or passing off care. So we all need to be thinking about this, about how we can be better providers for all of our patients. And this is a crucial part of the DEI equation, you know, of of really wanting to be um, better healthcare providers to a range of of people. So from your experience, when we're thinking about representing gender diversity Mm -hmm. in um, patient simulation, What have you found um, that students struggle with? I think when you present information to a student on paper, on a computer, and you give them a story and a narrative and you ask them to complete multiple choice questions, they're able to, in that moment, I guess the mode of learning is conducive to them taking the time to think through and come up with the right answer. When we put them live in front of another human being, 
what we see is that sometimes the things start to fall apart a little bit. So while a student may have gotten a right exam, a right, a right question on exam, when they are asked to kind of retrieve that information in the moment on the fly while they're walking and talking and thinking and prescribing and, you know, diagnosing and trying to think of what else to come up with, then there's higher cognitive load, right? Because they're doing all these tasks at the same time. And that higher cognitive load can then open up areas for students to make some mistakes that we don't necessarily see on paper. For example, we've had students who um, see and identify that they are talking to a standardized patient who is a trans man, and they will go through their you know, recommended cancer screenings and say that this person needs a prostate exam. On the one hand, it's great that this, this student has accepted and validated this person in their gender. But on the other hand, a trans man was not born with a prostate. And so they're recommending healthcare that's inappropriate for the patient. And so not only are they recommending something extra that wouldn't be done, but they are then failing to recommend something like a cervical pap, which would be relevant for this patient. Thinking about how we're training students to work with patients. Is this something that students should be thinking, This is these are skills that I need for my gender diverse patients, or is this something that is relevant for all interactions with patients? I think that question alludes to the notion that we are going to be able to tell. We're just going to be able to look at this person and know what questions they need or, or that, they're, that they're special, that they're different. And the truth is, that's not the case. You know, we've had people who definitely advocated for themselves as practitioners that they would just know when they could and couldn't use these questions. But what we've seen when we do simulation is that our students may come into this with some notion of, you know, someone throwing off signs of some sort that they are outside the gender binary or that they have crossed maybe the gender binary as a trans person. But the goal of many trans people is to be, to blend in. It's not to be, not everyone's goal is to stand out and to be trackable or traceable. Unless you're asking every patient. You wouldn't know. You just wouldn't know, yeah. So do you, I, the thing that I usually, the, the equivalent that I think about is when you go into, there, and I should say there are a lot of practices that have updated intake forms or the standard opening questions um, or identity questions. So this isn't, uh, this isn't true everywhere, but it is still true in a lot of places that um, you may go in and on the top of your intake form is, you know, what's your name, when were you born, date of birth, all these things, um, sex, male, female, check it off. And it, it, it isn't a specific question for someone who is in the LGBTQ community. It's part of your, it's part of your health history. Um, so when we think about the questions that we would uh, that would be more inclusive, mm -hmm. especially since you know we're seeing in younger populations more and more people are identifying um, as transgender, non-binary, you know, especially so we know there you know about twenty percent of the um, Gen Z population identifies in the LGBTQ community, and about two percent of those are. Um, people who identify as, as trans. If you're changing the paperwork to a two-question system where you're asking, what is your sex assigned to birth, male, female, they may or may not include um, intersex there. Okay, what is your gender identity? How do, you, um, how do you identify? That's a way to capture that 
uh, very easily and make that inclusive to everyone, to not assume automatically that the sex assigned at birth that's on the intake form is the same as the gender identity. Um, I think what's what's helpful to think, though, is a lot of people are already acknowledging that, mm-hmm. and it's not a big deal. We have this block where we're associating this, like, well, that's for LGBTQ patients. Well, no, we're actually, you too you, have a sex assigned at birth. You too have a yeah. gender identity. You have yes. a sexual orientation. Oh, I love that. This yes. is relevant to everyone. Yes. So the... We use these terms um, heteronormative and cisnormative to talk about um, the assumptions that we make about a person until proven otherwise. So it is small tweaks that providers and um, you know, all of us really can do to make sure that we're not making assumptions about people, that we're not assuming this is someone who is cisgender, heterosexual until proven otherwise, yeah. that there are other possibilities. And I think seeing that the, the percentages in the younger generation, certainly, yes, it's more people that providers will encounter. But to your point earlier, these are patients that are experiencing the health disparities. The problem goes deeper than just the form at the intake because it also has to do with what your electric um, electronic medical records system can handle, and then what the health insurance, how the health insurance codes. And so there, there kind of has to be this ability to ask, you know, what was your sex assigned at birth? What is your gender identity? But then there also has to be some kind of reconciliation with how do I put that in Epic or all scripts or, um, you know, how do we report this to the insurance company because it's going to matter along the way. So the, the problem, of course, is systemic and it's much larger. But what you can do immediately is start to just ask those questions so that you can be respectful of your patients. So I know you've done some work, um, and we've done some work. I should not be candid about this. We, we've done work on mm-hmm. um, looking at thinking about gender diversity and patient simulation. Do you want to talk about maybe the first project that that you worked on? Oh, sure. So, you know, Dr. Weingartner and I are co-authors here. <laughs> uh, we're research partners. Because we were starting to evaluate our own institutional curriculum on um, LGBTQ health, we wanted to focus particularly on um, gender we look to see what best practices are. You know, what are other people in simulation doing? And what we found is that there aren't any best practices. So how do you do that? You know, it's step by step. It's little by little. So the first thing our research team did was we sent out an invitation to complete a survey to simulation programs in every accredited medical school in the U.S. and Canada. We got around 40 responses to the survey and then asked people for follow-up interviews. We got a little over 20, I think 21 or 22, it's been a few years, who then completed a more in-depth phone interview. And we found such a wide range of practices that there, there truly isn't yet a best practice. That's what we're going for eventually. Our team at this institution has some pretty rigorously held beliefs about um, who and how and how carefully and um, should be engaged at all levels from writing curriculum to writing cases to hiring to training to portraying to assessing um, and, and so we want to um, come to some consensus in the field. And so we're, we're just trying to make that happen because it wasn't out there in the literature. So one of the main takeaways um, from that study that we found is, you know, there are patient simulation professionals who maybe have some background in this training, but there seems to be a gap between the people who are maybe designing cases yes. um, and, think, and the people who are actually out practicing and then what students are being asked or expected to do. How do we address that generational gap? In medicine, there is probably always an element of teaching up 
there is always an element that students have you know the most current the most recent information and knowledge and and that's that's probably just a feature of medicine i think one of the things that uofl has done really really well is train up some of the folks in our system who are you know the at the top of the apprenticeship model um, at the top of the medical hierarchy something that we found in that study is there's not consistency among programs for how gender diverse patients are portrayed so some programs will so we talked about this the first time that um that you were on the podcast uh, sometimes they, part of portraying um, patients is you write a background about a patient. You write their entire health history in their case. Mm-hmm. There are some programs um, in the U.S. and Canada were the programs that we talked to um, or sampled. Some programs will cast cisgender people to portray a transgender patient, to portray a non-binary patient. There are other programs that will absolutely not do that. They will only cast trans or non-binary people as trans or non-binary mm-hmm. patients. How do we get to a best practice mm-hmm. to figure out what you know what is acceptable and what should programs be doing? It's important for us to listen to people who are in this patient population, find out their preferences and priorities, and that has really guided the next steps of our research. Next phase was interviewing transgender and non-binary healthcare providers. So these were folks who had come up through the simulation system as learners. So they had some perspective on simulation and also had the lived experience to get their perception on who should be doing things like writing cases, who should be setting assessment goals, who should be portraying patients, who should be training. Um, And then, you know, next phase, we're hoping to talk to some students. We've also talked to our own and published on our own SPs perspectives, SPs who are gender minority, gender diverse, um, and their consensus is pretty soundly that these roles should be portrayed by, people should portray their own gender. People should not portray roles across gender. Um, And that has a lot to do with just the inaccessibility of the lived experience to someone who does not experience those um, hostilities, defers in in medical care, lack of access to medical care, the systemic um, underemployment, um, transphobia, homophobia, all those things that that there's a real lack of authenticity that could happen if we aren't very careful in every step along the way that we are engaging trans and non-binary voices as leaders in the curriculum and the assessment and the the hiring and the training at all points. Some of the perceptions that we heard in our in our interviews were um, a concern that if you cast someone who identifies as trans or non-binary who maybe is who very likely um, according to the the data that are out there very likely have experienced negative um, health care experiences that that is putting them in a position where they could be re-traumatized sure um, experience microaggressions from trainees sure you know, when the whole purpose is, um, you know, on the education side, the whole purpose is to allow, yeah. um, you know, students to work through this yeah. with not an actual patient. Yeah, so they can actually make mistakes in this place that's designed to be their learning lab. Yeah, but who am I to decide who is robust enough to do that work and who isn't? And so I really consider it that when I'm out recruiting and hiring, I'm honest about the types of things our SPs have experienced, our gender diverse SPs have experienced then I feel like it's an informed consent process. You know, like here are the benefits. The benefits are altruistic. It's really um, trying to better the future of healthcare for, you know, people who you identify with. 
And the risks are there may be some microaggressions. You may have a student who says to you something along the lines of, that's not natural. Um, and some people in that, through this kind of process of interviews and training and informed consent have dropped out and thought, this is really not for me, and that's okay. So it would seem, Carrie, that a, a unique group of people to talk with, to gain insight mm -hmm. into the lived experience of a transgender person would be healthcare providers who are themselves trans. So whether they're students, residents, fellows, right. or practicing right. physicians. Is there any attempt, either here or nationally, to engage that group and ask it from the provider and recipient perspective mm -hmm. what insights might inform training in a simulation or in a, uh, a simulated patient population mm -hmm. to help young learners understand better? Yeah, so we're actually working on this manuscript right now. Okay. Uh, so we talked to, I think, 22 providers who are transgender, non-binary, and they come from everything from physician to EMS, you know, technician to nursing, all sorts of, of backgrounds in the healthcare field. And we, we witnessed some really interesting thought processes and thought journeys through that. So when we started asking questions about, you know, who should be writing this, who should be portraying this, the answer was absolutely without a doubt, it has to be people, um, you have to give the voice to the people with the lived experience, so other trans, non-binary, gender diverse people. So then we started to introduce some of the realistic constraints. Yeah. Because if you can imagine being in a small town like Joplin, Missouri, where it's not safe to be out, it would be much more difficult to recruit participants in an environment in which it's not safe than it would be in New York City. You know, so we have some communities in our simulation world that really feel like they may never be able to do this work. When we started to introduce these constraints and say to these providers, is it more important for us to deliver this curriculum or is it more important for us to be absolute in our assignment of this work? Then we started to see some shifts. About a third of our respondents started to shift and say, okay, well, maybe the work is so important that we could open it up to people of other identities under certain conditions. So there were a lot of caveats to that, that they should be, that the cases should be written by people with the lived experience, that the training should be done, that, some, that the SPs should be given some insight into the types of um, hostilities and fear-based or ignorance-based behaviors that they would encounter. Um, so that they could portray this more authentically. Other people flat out said, then don't do simulation, find a different modality to teach the content. And I, I think the, the takeaway from that, what's important is, so we saw, some, um, we saw some of these thought journeys, like Carrie said, but the immediate reaction from a lot of the people in, in the interviews were, no, it's gotta be portrayal by people who identify as gender diverse. And this is coming from people who understand or at least have the most context to patient simulation and how hard it is to recruit, how, you know, that it's not a full-time job, that uh, the pool is always in flux. They have the most context to patient simulation because they are themselves providers. So within the gender diverse community, the people with the most context to simulation training, if the immediate reaction is it's gotta be gender diverse people, you can imagine in the broader pot, you know, the broader community, mm -hmm. That's probably going to be the reaction to, you know, the study yet to be done, 
but you know we focus very specifically on on this group you can you can think then when we're thinking about how to design these this curriculum that's what you're that's what you're facing is the nuance is not going to be there um, when you're thinking about how to cast or how to how to to develop the curriculum but on the flip side it still is such important content to get to students and to have students have the opportunity to practice. One of the outcomes that came out from our original study talking to different patient simulation programs, we asked, how do you, how do you present this work? You know, how are you doing the, this training? And we found that there were some programs that they would have, this is the gender affirming care case. Students are practicing, you know, like how, how to um, take an inclusive history, prescribing hormones, you know, that, those sorts of, what are your transition goals? Then there were other programs that they had a diverse SP pool and they would cast trans and non-binary um, patients in all of their cases. So there, there are alternative ways to have students still be able to get that practice without maybe just having the gender diverse case. Mm-hmm. It sounds like from the work that you've been doing with gender diversity and patient simulation, you've been thinking a lot about this. Can you talk about where the field is, like the patient SP world, patient mm-hmm. simulation field is? Right now, you know, the, the big conversations are about recruitment and the potential of virtual simulation. So one of the things the pandemic taught us was that we could do really effective simulation over Zoom. And that was just not common in our field before March or May, you know, March, yeah, March of 2020. Um, and so now there's, you know, we've actually at U of L um, allowed other programs to contract our gender diverse SPs to do virtual experiences for them. Um, what we've learned from that is that there's also an array of um, preparedness on the part of faculty and students. And so it takes a lot of kind of warming up for me to feel um, that faculty and students are prepared to host our learners respectfully, or sorry, to host our, that, that, that our faculty and their students are prepared to host our SPs respectfully and affirming in an affirming way. You've mentioned a couple of times now respectful treatment. Yes. Uh, whether it's internally or if you're outsourcing your yes. your uh, uh, trans patients to other centers. Mm-hmm. How do you see the outcome uh, of respectful treatment for all, regardless of their perception of their gender? How is that woven into the student education here at UofL? So it's actually part of our communication curriculum from day one. What we know about healthcare is that patients who feel um, respected and close to their physician are more likely to follow their physician's recommendations. They are uh, more likely to pay their bills. They're more likely to take their medicine, fulfill their prescription, or get their prescriptions filled. They're more likely, they're less likely to sue for malpractice. That positive relationship, the trust, the rapport, they lead to better outcomes for everyone, not just a particular population. So Carrie, we always ask our guests to recommend something that our listeners can do you know, next week after they listen to this podcast. So what would you recommend that our listeners do in relation to gender diversity and simulation? Either look within your own professional associations or journals to see what's going on um, or ask a friend in the LGBT community about their healthcare experiences and what that's been like for them 
or um, look to a professional resource like the Fenway Guide, which can be a little tough to read. It's over 700 pages. Or the eQuality Toolkit, that's a free downloadable resource. Or the AAMC Guidelines, that's a free downloadable resource. Um, the AAMC Guidelines really help explain the disparities and the cause of the disparities. That the cause is not the identity, the cause is society's reaction to the identity and the, the way that minority stress um, affects overall health. That's great. We'll link all of those resources in the show notes. Yay. So, Carrie, thank you so much for coming back and talking to us about this. It's been really interesting. Thanks for having me. We have a new vice provost for faculty affairs at the University of Louisville. Join us next Friday on Faculty Feed as we talk with Dr. Cherie Dawson-Edwards. She has an amazing story of her own career path and how she sees the unique approach she's putting in place. Next Friday, be there. If you want to up your game as a professional educator or to enhance your leadership skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be, as together we strive to make UofL a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to invest. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links and additional information from today's session, as well as our email address. Feel free to contact us at facfeed at louisville.edu. That's F-A-C-F-E-E-D at louisville.edu. Join us next time for more and come hungry.